That wasn't too awkward, was it? Suze. Hey, Jeffrey. What's going on? Not much. It is a warm, warmer day here in Baltimore, and I am sitting sweltering in my home because I have realized I can never put um, <laughs> I can never put a fan on when we're recording because my microphone is too powerful. I know. I shut off my AC, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's a little, little, little hot in here. A little steamy. What's that? Like that Nelly song? <laughs> no, you, you want to break into some song now, Jeffrey? I don't know. <laughs> I will say, though, we have to not record on Monday nights because you're cutting into my WWE wrestling time. Uh, tell me about it. I had just been watching a couple of uh, great, uh, great matches. The women's match tonight was pretty fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Tell me about who knew that uh, we were both into a little bit of wrestling. There's a museum and professional wrestling uh, connection here somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. Listen, listeners, I'm sure other listeners um, are into uh, wrestling, and um, if you if you are, hit us up. Let us know. Yeah, I, I'm I'm less confident than you are, actually, Jeffrey. I have asked about this a couple of times on Twitter, and the answers have been few and far between. And in fact, when I've been at say professional gatherings like conferences and mentioned my uh, my my wrestling interests, crickets. Really? Yeah. Unbelievable. People do not understand. And, you know, it's it's one of the great storytelling uh, platforms of our time, some yeah. might say. I think museums can learn a lot from the compelling narratives that take place um, at, at, for, through WWE. Yeah, I agree. Who's your favorite wrestler? <laughs> uh, that's a tough call. I... I I'm I'm pretty partial to some of the some of the women's division wrestlers such as uh, Sasha Banks mm-hmm. and uh, Becky Lynch. I have to say they're pretty good. And then you have some really fabulous heels. A term we might have to explain, like uh, Chris yeah. Jericho, who uh, I'm a big <laughs> fan of. <laughs> what about yourself? I'm a Bray Wyatt guy. I like ah! you. I like the I like the creepy ones. The ones with some some deep dark <laughs> backgrounds. <laughs> So should we should we explain to people what what a face and a heel is if they're not familiar? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, so wrestling is, as I say, one of the great storytelling spaces, platforms of I think our time, and one of the ways it plays with these big meta narratives is having very clear um, people to cheer for and people to boo. Mm-hmm. In, in a simple in a simple sense and so a face a baby face is uh someone that you cheer for that you love someone who uh does the right thing more often than not and a heel is the opposite a heel is someone who will uh win by dirty tricks and that you can enjoy uh cheering against them anytime they come on stage does that does that sum it up it does and the moral of the story is that museums out there you got to be the face. <laughs> yeah. Right? Anyway, enough wrestling. On to, <laughs> on to Museo Punks, episode 22. How you, uh, what are we talking about tonight? 
So tonight we're talking about museum visitor behaviour, but really about the behaviours that visitors come into our museums with. This started from uh, some interesting research that you'd been doing, actually, Jeffrey, and you published not that long ago, talking yeah. about um, phone use in museums. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you were doing? Uh, yeah, sure. So at the studio at Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, uh, like I talked about in an episode earlier, we're, we're building a chatbot, which um, is an artificial intelligence um, bot that visitors could um, or will be able to interact with over SMS text messaging. Hmm. And we wanted to base all of our design decisions on real world data uh, and we wanted to align those decisions with the behaviors that were ha- we thought were happening in our yeah. galleries we had a we had a pretty good good inclination that yes people were bringing phones yes uh, people did not really make use of existing museum apps and yes people sent text messages and felt comfortable sending text messages so we did a um, several week study of several hundred museum hmm. visitors and um, found out some interesting results. Um, and those results are now informing our design decisions as we develop this chat out over the next couple months. Um, it's, re- it's really great. It was a really interesting paper to read. And we will obviously include a link in the show notes. I think one of my um, favorite stats from that uh, although not a surprising one, was how few uh, visitors have museum apps on their phones. Yeah, and, you know, it's, I think, one, you know, one of the things I'm looking forward to talking to Ali Burness, our, one of our two guests, about is, you know, figuring out a way that we can start to create data sets across the sectors, because I, can, I would only assume that my data in Pittsburgh, very kind of regional market, not a lot of tourists varies ver- very much from, say, New York museums or London museums. So um, while you know it's our data is very important to us as we build our experiences, it would be interesting to kind of start to compare some of this data with other museums if they sh- if they do do this type of research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always benefit in being able to see very much what applies to your own institution, but also for us to start to see trends across the sector in in where those differences lie yeah so like i said we're talking with ali burness um who um has a museum background but has has been making a transition outside of the sector to um to um the the larger experience design field um Yeah, and she's done some really interesting work over the last few years around how visitors are using their devices, particularly around things like selfies in museums and how visitors are using Instagram and social sharing and what they're sharing in museums. Definitely valuable stuff. And uh, But first, we're going to talk to Dr. Teddy Asher, who is, um, I believe, the first neuroscience uh, researcher Uh, at a museum at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah, I am so excited about this. I... Areas of, I am not a scientist. I am not. I have never <laughs> trained formally in any of the, you know, major sciences. But I find I find science in all its dimensions fascinating, and the idea of neuroscience of digging into how humans process behavior, how the brain works, how the body works, and how they all work together 
is fascinating to me. I am so excited for this interview. Yeah, me too. So let's get to it. Dr. Teddy Asher is a neuroscience researcher at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. The position, which marks the first for an art museum, supports the museum's neuroscience initiative and is made possible through a generous grant from the Barr Foundation. Dr. Asher earned her PhD from Harvard Medical School's Biological and Biomedical Sciences program and has spent the last 12 years gaining experience in a wide range of fields, including neuroscience and psychology. At the Peabody Essex Museum, she will synthesize neuroscience research findings and make recommendations on how museums can enhance and enrich the visitor experience. Teddy, thanks so much for being a guest on Museopunks. Thanks for having me. Oh, uh, our pleasure. So, um, Teddy, yours is the first neuroscience position in an art museum, but before we get too deep into your work at the museum, could you just tell us a little bit about what neuroscience is and the kind of research that falls under its purview? Sure. Um, well, the way, the way that I think of the term neuroscience is as kind of an umbrella um, that spans a number of different disciplines. So you can have, um, you know, the study of human behavior that falls more into the psychology realm or... Um, cognitive neuroscience, where you might do some neuroimaging of the human brain, all the way down to the cellular level and molecular level, using animal models to study gene expression and cellular mechanisms hmm. in, the, in, in neurons. So with such a wide range then of, of sort of terms that, that this covers or, or areas of science that this covers, what aspects of this are you then bringing to PIM, and how does this kind of research apply to an art museum? Sure. So um, this this job has been a bit of a transition for me. I've always worked in animal models, studying the brain, hmm. um, but this this position um, gives me the opportunity to really delve into the human literature. So I'm sort of focused at that end of the spectrum, um, and. You know, we're, we're interested in researching all kinds of topics pertaining to attention and visual and auditory perception um, and wayfinding, so navigating through a, a localized space. Um, so I'm researching all of these different kinds of topics and bringing what I find to, into meetings um, so that we can collaborate and try and extrapolate from those basic findings to how they can be applied in the gallery. So, I mean, it seems like your, your, your view of the museum is, is intentionally kind of holistic, right? Everything from like, uh, you know, wayfinding and space navigation to the more conceptual aspects. So who do you work most closely with at the museum? And can sure. you talk a little bit, um, can you talk a little bit about how that position was was created or, or what area of the museum um, kind of brought you in? Sure. Uh, so I kind of float <laughs> is the way that I see it. Um, so PEM takes a very team-based approach to designing exhibitions, mm -hmm. um, and I'm part of some of those teams. So any given team will have a curator, an interpreter, a designer, a project manager. You know, so there are all of these different roles and for the teams that I'm on, there's also a role of neuroscientists. Um, so that's, that's basically how I integrate into the structure here. 
It's a little bit wild. This actually sort of blows my mind thinking about the different types of positions and, and other ways that museums can be investigating um, everything from how our brains are wired to appreciate art, which is something you've spoken about in one of your blog posts, as well as how we can use knowing more about these sorts of things within exhibition design and, and even sort of further out into the museum as well, not just looking at exhibitions, but other aspects of the museum design. Where do you even start such an investigation, though? I mean, how do you, how do you even start asking the right questions when you're faced with a new exhibition? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, so I think we're all still sort of figuring out how this works. Mm -hmm. um, but basically the way that I come at it is I see um, basically that there are two categories of influences on our perception. There are those in influences that come from the so-called bottom up and those that come from the top down. Um, so let me explain that a little mm -hmm. bit. So what I mean by bottom up influences are those... Um, factors that stem from the physicality of a stimulus. So it's color or contrast or lighting. Um, whereas by top down, I mean sort of more of an inside out influence. What associations do we have with a stimulus? What memories or emotions does a particular stimulus conjure? So either bottom up or top down influences can impact the nature of our experience. Um, so to me, it seems like our access to a visitor's top-down influences are much, is much harder to access, mm -hmm. right? Accessing their memories or their, you know, what they were just doing before they came in the museum. All of that is sort of sequestered from us. Um, so I've started by focusing on the bottom-up aspects. So one really clear example of that, I think, is learning about how our visual system is structured to influence our perception. Mind is kind of blowing right now. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> uh, Did any that, of that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, it makes it makes complete sense. And you know, it's okay. something that we I don't you know we, at my museum we don't have a neuroscientist on staff, but we definitely are starting like to think about things in this way. In this way, um, and I'm wondering like how like what kind of insights if you can talk about any of it what kind of insights sure. or data that you know have you been generating and and um or and incorporating into the design of an exhibition or the way the museum is laid sure. out have you, have you gotten um, to that point yet so you phrased the question in an interesting way that makes me think of two things hmm. um you asked what kind of data we're generating and so um hopefully we will be generating data of our own um using various evaluation techniques. So um, once we create hypotheses about what kinds of um, changes to exhibitions um, to, to, to make, we can implement them and then evaluate the effects. So that's sort of one form of data collection that we're in the process of starting. Um, but then I think what you're asking is more about the findings from the literature that we draw on to inform exhibition design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so um, there are lots of different kinds of data that we draw on. So just to start with something super simple, um, just to give you an example of the way that the structure of our visual system might impact choices that we make in the gallery. So um, probably everyone is familiar with the idea that 
um, the retina, the tissue in the back of your eye, has two kinds of um, cells that are sensitive to light, rods and cones, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And so cones can detect color, whereas rods can detect just light and dark. Um, and so what's interesting is that the cones tend to be centered in the middle of your eye, whereas the rods tend to be clustered more on the periphery of your eye. So what this means is that when we want to see something in high detail and in color, we need to use the center of our vision. Mm -hmm. But when mm -hmm. we're trying to just detect brightness levels, it's actually more effective to use our peripheral vision, which is why you may have noticed that stars actually appear brighter out of the corner of your eye than when you look directly at them. Mm. Hmm. Okay. So this is a very simple um, kind of elementary example of how learning about the biology of the visual system can help us figure out, well, where should we place this colorful object relative to the lighting or, you know, to, it help, might help us to compose scenes within the gallery. Huh. Yeah, cool. that's amazing. <laughs> it also, I, I think it helps make sense. I was thinking about what you were saying about starting with sort of bottom up versus top down. And correct me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong, I, I'm, I'm just trying to sort of get my head around this would there be much more commonality with the bottom-up experiences? So thinking about the biology of the eye and how it takes in light versus the top-down, which would be much more individualized if you're looking at things like memory and experiences people are bringing into the, into the space? That's the hypothesis that I have, yeah, is that the bottom-up systems, because they're based in our sensory systems, which should have some common biology, that those are going to be more common across cultures and across the population. Interesting. So one of the things we're looking at in my museum is um, aligning the experience with, um, with the behaviors that have, you know, um, permeated throughout our culture recently, specifically new technologies, right? Like people are bringing these mobile devices with them and, um, and using them in the spaces. So could we optimize our experience to kind of align with those in interesting ways? Have, have, does any of this, any of, any of the tech, technological developments or have these, any of these technologies had impact on, on the way people think and process information in the museum, in your opinion? Um, you know, I don't know if I've had enough experience working in a museum yet to know that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think from a neuroscience standpoint, um, I would imagine that it, it does change the nature of your experience, you know, to be acting with something digital versus something more analog that might be right in front of you. Um, but I, I feel like I haven't quite been here long enough to observe enough to really have a definitive answer for that. Sure. Do you think museums could be doing a better job of of um, sharing research in this area? Like, you know, um, whether it be publishing evaluation data or, um, you know, so that we can start to learn from each other. Would that be, in your opinion, a valuable um, way oh, that museums could work together? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, definitely. I think... Uh, I mean, it's just my stance across the board that the more open and uh, the more we can share information, the further we're going to go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Teddy, I've read that one of the ideas that sort of motivated bringing a neuroscientist into the museum was this desire to better understand how 
the human brain not just connects to the physical world but how that then connects to and feeds into our emotions so i'm really curious what you sort of anticipate the impact of a scientific or a neuroscientific approach might be to the emotional aspects of the visitor experience yeah that's a really good question um so i think that's something that we're very interested in figuring out um there's definitely data out there to suggest that um, the more emotional an experience is, the, the better you're going to remember it, mm. basically. Um, and I, there also seems to be some connection there between the emotionality of an experience and deriving meaning from it. Um, and I say that more in an anecdotal way than in a data-based way. But, um, so I think we're really interested in gleaning what we can from the literature about how various changes to the physical environment can evoke emotion or can impact one's emotional experience um, in the hopes that that will help to create a more meaningful experience that that visitors are likely to take with them when they leave the museum. Hmm. This is such a progressive approach to experience in my, you know, from my perspective. I'm wondering how more, how some of the more traditional um, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. How more of the some of the more traditional museologists at PEM or mm-hmm. throughout the sector may um, uh, start to think about this? Um, I, 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 basically, are, are curators receptive to this? <laughs> in your opinion? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think everyone here at PEM, at least, I haven't had too much contact with museum professionals outside of mm-hmm. PEM yet. Um, but certainly here at PEM, everyone has been really welcoming and really open-minded. Um, when I first started, I met with each of the curators and sort of talked to them about how we could work together and what their approach, you know, in the past has been and what how they envision it going forward. Um, I think there's definitely, um, and with, you know, good reason, I think, not skepticism, but, mm. you know, faith in the fact that curating in, a, you know, with without a neuroscience um, perspective has been going on for many, many, many years. And, you know, that it's been productive and meaningful. And so I think there's some desire to not lose what that brings. Mm -hmm. Um, But in in my experience, people have been very open to what can be gained by incorporating a neuroscience perspective. Yeah, and I think I think definitely there's value around um, you know talking about this type of approach, communicating it again, sharing what this type of approach, the impact it can have on exhibitions and programs in the museum, and um, you know it's it's completely fascinating. Yeah, in my yeah, opinion. Teddy, I, I'm actually just it, you're really a pioneer in this. You you are. The first person, certainly in an art museum that I know of, who is doing anything like this, particularly in a permanent way, I'm, I'm sure there might have been some other short-term interventions. What, what do you hope to take out of this, or what do you hope to, to, to achieve in bringing your own work and your own perspectives to this? Because it's not just the museum that, although they they sort this position out, it's obviously not just them that are bringing um, a desire for investigation to this. You must have your own thoughts and and things that you'd really like to get out of this position. Yeah. Um, Well, I sort of see this position as an exploration, um, sort of personally and professionally. So 
this is my first job out of grad school. Um, it's really my first job out of a lab. Um, and so I'm sort of exploring what can be done out in this great world mm. <laughs> um, without a pipette in hand. And, uh, but I think more conceptually speaking, you know, I've always had this really strong interest in trying to understand human emotional experiences, um, you know, where they come from and why they manifest as they do and why they affect us as they do. Uh, and so I really am taking this as an opportunity to dive into the literature that's relevant to that question um, and really just glean as much as I can from it um, and then apply it to something that has the, the potential to impact other people, which is really something that I was looking for in grad school was that kind of human element to my work. Mm -hmm. um, so... I, I really see this as just a great exploration. Well, I, I can only assume that the listeners of this podcast and, and many throughout the museum sector will find uh, your work to be um, as interesting and fascinating as Susan and I do. So I'm wondering um, if there's a, a way that people can, can follow you and follow your work at PEM, um, uh, where they might be able to do that. Yeah. So right now, um, we're not too outward facing about it mm -hmm. yet. Um, but as part of the, the grant from the Barr Foundation, we will be putting together a publication um, at some point. <laughs> so great, great. Um, I hope that that will be accessible once it's complete. Um, and I can certainly keep you updated about where to find it. Yeah, that would be fantastic. fantastic. It might be really great for us to check back in with you when you are a little further along in your research as well and start to see, you know, this this is a program in its, in its nascency and it would be really nice to see how and where it develops and what that can start to mean for the sector long term. Absolutely, absolutely. It was so awesome talking with you today. Um, we really appreci appreciate you taking the time, and, and we look forward to really keeping up with you and watching what happens there at Peabody Essex. Well, thank you. This has been really fun. Ali Burness is currently an experienced designer with ThinkPlace, a global strategic design consultancy that applies human-centered design and complex systems thinking to create public value. On the side, she's a freelance digital producer designing digital presences for artists, small arts organizations, and non-for-profits. She also researches, publishes, tutors, and speaks about the value of creative digital expression and social media use in the cultural sector. Ali previously worked in museums and galleries as a digital producer and collection manager for around 10 years. She's created content for institutions such as the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, the Wellcome Collection in the U.K., and the Powerhouse Museum and Museums and Galleries New South Wales in Australia. She is now based in Sydney. Ali, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a long-time listener, so very pleased to be invited. It's so exciting, and I have to say a little bit of a shout-out to home. It's nice to be talking to someone back on the, uh, on the uh, other side of the world, back in Australia. Yeah, over the pond. I, I feel outnumbered here. <laughs> now you know how I usually feel, Jeffrey. 
<laughs> so in this episode, we've been talking about how museums can really better align their work with the behaviours that visitors bring into the gallery. Ali, you recently published a study with Kylie Budge looking at the way that museum visitors engage with objects through Instagram, the social media platform. Can you tell us a little bit about that study and your findings? Why do visitors to museums take photographs and share them on social media? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I did, I did this research with Kylie Budge, who at the time was the research manager at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences here in Sydney. And so that includes the Powerhouse Museum. And another really key um, member of our research team was Jim Fishwick, who's a program producer at the same museum. He's also a freelance experience consultant and general immersive theatre, punk rock, warlord, whatever we want to tick, <laughs> which box we want to tick. Um, so um, in, in all the research that I do, I take a human-centred and qualitative approach. I don't have a quantitative or market research background. I'm always looking for motivations rather than what people are doing. I'm looking at why they do what they do. Um, and so in this particular piece of research, Kylie and I took one data set and we took a, a case study approach we looked at 400 images that was posted to one geotag on Instagram uh, for one museum in one week. Um, and we actually semi-automated that collection through um, IFTTT. Um, so um, we were able to go in and, and click particular images and we removed the museum's posts from our data set. We really centered the visitor's eye and we just wanted to look at what visitors um, we're taking images of. Um, that automated system isn't possible anymore, unfortunately, since Instagram changed its API. Um, so that, that, with that first, um, with that data set, the first approach we took to analyzing that was through a visual analysis approach. Um, so we, we printed out each of those 390 to 400 images, stuck them up on the wall, and we grouped them into categories that organically emerged from the data set. Um, we looked at the images first and then referred to the captions if it helped to clarify uh, what, an, what an image might be focusing on or what its purpose might be. And out of that, we had a, a range of categories, um, categories that had objects in them took up about 75% of the data set. Um, and, but these were kind of overlapping. So there were um, categories that included people and that might um, be social happenings, selfies, that kind of thing. Um, and they had about 45%. So, you know, you can see that social inclusion and the social motivations for a visit is really manifesting in our images. Um, but of course, we're in buildings full of objects. That's the prime purpose. It makes sense that objects are so present. Yeah. Um, so, Ali, when a, when a museum does this, for example, say they mine posts that are happening on Instagram and other social media to kind of get a sense for what and why their visitors are, are posting, mm. how might they start to engage those people around um, that content? Yeah, well, I think that's the ultimate end goal for, for this research. Um, a few things we found about why um, visitors were posting that we can build on. Uh, visitors were really enacting their own sense of agency 
by weaving themselves and their experience into the collection, the exhibition, the programming through their photography. Um, mm -hmm. We could see that in the captions, we could see that in the images. Um, and I mean, our social media managers uh, wander around with this intimate knowledge about how our visitors are interpreting um, our collections every day. It's this data set that, that sits in our social media managers' heads. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that's something that is sitting pretty. It, it's just this ripe opportunity to build on. Um, and I think if, if we were to be, we were able to build our social media managers and, and provide them with the resources to do similar studies. And, and I think the findings of this initial paper aren't necessarily groundbreaking, but I think the method is where mm. the value is. Um, anyone can, to, can follow the same method uh, and, and discover what it is visitors are doing and, and find insights for why they're doing it in the data set that they are being given every day by their visitors. And, and think about also expanding that out beyond social media managers. Imagine the value uh, that, you know, if a curator were given access to that or an educator were given access to that to see which objects and which um, subjects are, people are, are resonating with, right? I mean, Absolutely. Is that the goal? Yeah. But at the same time, as we have docents and visitor services officers on the floor of our museums who have a deep understanding every day about what visitors are doing physically in the museums, Social media managers mm -hmm. uh, have that comparable knowledge and yeah. for them to work closely with programming staff, education staff, curators, that, that's incredibly powerful. Social media's, media managers need time, professional development and a team and, and you know, that they're there, the curators are there can, you know, to co-design um, some kind of response from the museum together. Um, that, that would be incredible. And I know Megan Estep at the National Gallery of Art in DC has talked about this really uh, compellingly about the idea of using our visitors as teachers and building on our mm -hmm. visitors' interpretations of our collections. So what's our response going to be? And I, I think um, that's, that, that's, the answer's still hanging. Um, yeah, Ali, it's interesting. You sort of mentioned that although this was a singular case study, the methods were actually really useful and you think they could be more broadly applied. Are there any data sets that we have that do span the sector or are there ways that we might be able to compare, say, tourist market museum behaviour with regional behaviour? I guess what I'm really getting to are, are there ways that museums can begin to share their social data and collaborate around the sorts of work that you've been doing to analyse behaviour across the sector rather than in an individual exhibition or an individual museum? Um, there's hurdles in the sense that technologically it's a challenge. And as I mentioned, mm -hmm. Instagram changed its API, which means it's really hard to even semi-automate some data collection from it. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's a real uh, spanner in the works for creating a similar data set again, let alone doing so across institutions. But I know there are people working on this and, and I think, um, well, I, I presented, I was part of a panel at uh, the Museum Computer Network Conference last year and Chad Weinhard talked about efforts to develop a process for ingesting data sets that might sit along and link with collection data. Um, so, there are efforts there, and, and I know that, that 
you know, museums do collect, or some museums do collect these huge data sets. Ryan Dodge from the Royal Ontario Museum has talked about having an enormous collection of yeah. this data that's waiting to be interpreted. And, and it's certainly um, a set that I'd be keen to sort of, um, you know, expand my own research into. Yeah. So photography, now that we're all walking around with, you know, incredibly powerful computers in our pockets, the thing, you know, one of the things most everybody does is obviously take photographs because the cameras are getting better. The quality of the imagery is getting better. Do you think that museums really have fully understood or even embraced the, the ways that visitors are starting to use these devices, like taking photographs or you know, sending text messages and and just the full capabilities that these little computers now offer us at any given moment. Yeah, um, I think we're getting there. Um, I think it's a journey. I mean, museums have this centuries-long history that began well before digital technology, it, it, and that is now still being worked into the core processes of what museums do. And it, so it's a journey that we're on. Um, you know, we'd spend a lot of time thinking about how to use digital technology ourselves as an organisation. Um, and then there's this other question of, well, our visitors come in with these little computers in their pockets. What are they doing with them? Um, yeah. How do we leverage that as a separate question to what technology are we using internally? Um, so maybe I can rephrase the question. Do you mm -hmm. feel that museums need to or should be aligning with these uh, existing behaviors because or, or should or should our experiences be meaningful enough that we can change the visitor experience or visitor behavior? I feel that um, there is a sweet spot that we should be aiming for, and it's knowing what our mission is as an organization, as a museum, what, what impact we would like to have on visitors when they, they interact with our collections, knowing what visitors are doing with digital technology and, and their phones in this particular example, and why they're doing that. Where do those two interests overlap? And leveraging that little overlap. That's the sweet spot where mm -hmm. The museum's interests and the visitors' interests are one. That's what we need to be going for. Yeah, I was quite interested. A few minutes ago, you mentioned the importance of user agency, and it's something you also talk about in the study is this idea of user agency and authority. And I think often when we think about authority in a museum context, we mean it quite differently from what you were thinking about. So getting to that sweet spot, how do museums empower their visitors or help um, enable that sense of agency and, and give them that agency over their experience um, whilst whilst they're in the galleries, but also help them find the sweet spot that is also the sweet spot for us? Um, I, I think visitors come in and enact their agency whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, I, I'm not sure if I have the most compelling answer to this. It's, it's about talking to our visitors and, and, and doing the research to deeply understand what they're doing with their phones and why. And I mean, there's been a hell of a lot of conversation around what our expectations of visitors are in terms of behaviour and how smartphone technology is disrupting that. 
if we can take the time to properly understand why these behaviours are happening in our galleries and then work out how they align with our missions and what, what, we, what we want, what we want for our visitors, um, that's, that's, what, that's the goal. Rather than changing visitor behaviours, it's working with them to support what our missions are. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Ali, I'm going to change gears real quick because, mm-hmm. um, and think back to, I think my f- my first memory of you and how I think I became in contact with you in 2013. You took a 12 month museum pilgrimage, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And visiting more than 200 museums across, you know. Ton, like dozens of countries. Um, and so you had this opportunity to travel the world, visit museums of all kinds, gain really nuanced insight, I think, into um, just the, the the diverse diversity, the breadth of museum practice. What has stayed with you about that trip? I have so many answers to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um and so I didn't take any systematic approach to my experience that year when I was touring all those museums. Um, often people have come to me and asked, you know, through your analysis, what would be your answer to these questions? I, I didn't analyse. I immersed myself in the visitor experience. So I mm-hmm. described that year as my um, human-centred design origin story. It, I, I cannot think outside of that I am inherently visitor centered and user centered mm-hmm. in my mindset now um, so that's I mean in that sense it has radically changed my career and and my outlook on what I do um, it, there was all sorts of themes that came out of that that have stayed with me and keep rising up again um, one of them is uh, sort of like a differences on a on a vertical level. So differences in how collections that try to speak to a broad geographic area, a national narrative, how they engage or inspire engagement in their visitors in comparison to those tiny, tiny collections that have a very community specific focus and, and the kind of reactions they inspire. They're quite different people engage very differently and and that's that's a really interesting spectrum um and and there's so much that our really big collecting institutions can learn from our really tiny collections that maybe don't even have a curator um so that was definitely something that sat with me um Another topic that seems to be becoming a bit of an obsession is the relationship between art and design because I came from an art historical background. I've moved into design and museums kind of sit in that hot spot. Um, So I've been thinking about how art might sit on a spectrum of innovation and art would be the creative R&D hothouse. So we're all thinking, (laughs) is this magic? I don't understand. Whereas design is that real implementation place where we trust what designers make and they implement at scale. Um, It's a, and I'm still teasing out that relationship. I'm always innately drawn to the boundaries of things. So it's been a fascinating leap to make and and museums kind of sit within that. 
it's really interesting hearing you talk about this idea that people trust designers or we trust designers but don't necessarily have the same trust in art is that is that something you were getting at is there a is there a trust gap between art and design potentially and it would be a really interesting topic to to dig into i know that in australia the art sector has sort of been under attack and uh -huh. the the sense of public value that art can bring is not not very broadly understood i think um, because it's so hard to measure art can the impact is hard to measure it has a smaller audience uh, and so the art sector I know here in Australia has been forced to defend itself in, in all sorts of ways. Is it because of that broad lack of understanding about the impact of the arts in society that the sector doesn't receive a spirited public defence when under threat? I feel looking at the Australian example that there is probably a relationship between perceived public value, public trust and the health of the arts. I don't have the answer, but it's definitely an idea worth digging into. So I think one thing I'd love to ask then is you've been making this career transition from being a digital producer in museums to becoming an experienced designer. In your view, having experienced both inside and outside the museum sector, what insights or approaches do you think museums can borrow or adapt from the private sector with respect to aligning with better, better with user behaviour patterns? Um, I think there's a really strong movement inside the museum sector to adopt user-centred design and design thinking. That, that's a really strong trend, particularly in those areas that directly interface with visitors. Sometimes I wonder if that can be expanded more deeply into those, um, into the organisational structure, into the design of deep strategy. Um, they also would benefit greatly from co-design techniques, from design thinking, rather than those strategies being conjured in-house at high levels of management and then pushed out. Let's co-design a digital strategy for the museum with audiences. What would that look like? Um, if audiences wanted to have some input into um, the organisational structure of the museum, what would that look like? Um, so instead of it being on a project-by-project -project basis, what about at a deeper level of the institutions? I think, I think there is scope to grow that human-centred design skill at those deeper levels. Yeah. Um, Ali, do you, do you miss being in it every day? <laughs> um, uh, no. <laughs> nah. Nah, you know... Yeah. I mean, one thing I've learned is that to work every day and to vote, devote your whole life to a burning passion, something you so deeply believe in, you'll burn out really quickly and you will also become disillusioned really quickly because you've got really strong views about how things could work. And I always end up at that forefront trying to push things into a more innovative space. And I, I as a 
industry, I don't think it naturally sits there. Um, so I think um, I've learned that there's real value in dipping in and out for self-preservation. Um, um, but also, you know, leveraging that opportunity to work with other sectors, to grow knowledge from that, to bring it back into the museum sector, but also to take a breather in those, you know, those other spaces where perhaps, you know, it's not coming out of your sense of identity. Um, that, yeah. That's a really heavy load to carry all the time. That was a brilliant um, link back to episode 20, which dealt with self, self-care. Oh, true. <laughs> Indeed. And also, in fact, episode 21, dealing with insiders and outsiders. Yes. Yeah, there we go. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, way to bring it home, Allie. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yes. Ali, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us about this. It has been really enjoyable to hear about the work you've been doing and the way your thinking is evolving as you continue looking at these different things from both inside and outside the museum. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, been a very interesting discussion. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, Suze, a lot to uh, process there. Yeah, there always is. Every single episode I walk away with so much to think about. And this gave us, I think, some really different perspectives, thinking about research in the museum and working with visitors and about the behaviours that visitors are bringing into the museum with them. Yeah, I cannot wait to see how Teddy's research uh, progresses over the next few months and years, really. Yeah, absolutely. I do think we should definitely check back in with her in a year or so and see what she's discovered. Season three. (laughs) Season three. I like it. Well, that that is a a really classy segue, a nice way for us to thank our presenting sponsor uh, this month and every month. We are, as always, presented by the American Alliance of Museums, and we are so happy about that. Um, Jeffrey, if people want to find us on the internet, where can they do so? You can tweet us at Museopunks, and you can also view show notes and links and information about all our guests at museopunks.org yes and uh this month in particular we would love to hear your wrestling stories if you are another closet wrestling fan out there in museum world we have to believe they exist get in contact with us or if you just don't understand why we are into wrestling hit us up as well i am sure we would love another excuse to uh dive a little bit more into this incredible narrative format And maybe in the future, we'll have an episode dedicated to what museums can learn from professional wrestling. I absolutely think we should. Okay, Suze, that's another episode in the can. And I look forward to chatting with you next month. Yeah, Jeffrey, it has been great fun. I can't wait to chat to you again soon. Oh!